Exodus chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow, overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Have you ever tried to describe something that maybe was unfamiliar to you or maybe unique? And uh, someone says, well, what's it, what's it like? And you just kind of have a hard time coming up with the words of what this particular thing is like. For example, uh, around March, I like to have a shamrock shake each year. And you think about a shamrock shake, and if someone hasn't had that, how do you describe it to them? Well, it's mint, but it's not really mint. It's kind of different, and it, it, you just kind of have to have it. You have to try it to experience what it's like. Or a, few, a few months ago, I went into a store, and they had uh, this thing called Moshi ice cream. And Moshi ice cream is like uh, ice cream, and then it has like this rice thing on on top of it so it's just basically like a little ice cream ball and so i tried one and stephanie didn't try one and she's like so what's it like and i was like i don't know it's just like rice ice cream i all i know is i don't really like it <laughs> it's hard to describe things that are unique or different and back in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at how Moses is going to go to the people of uh, Israel, and he's going to lead them out of slavery. And he asked God, so when I go to them, what am I to say that your name is? Who am I going to tell them that you are? 
And basically what he's saying is, what is a reference or what is a, something that I could describe you to them? How can I uh, sum you up as a God? And remember, God says, I am who I am. And he says, I'm Yahweh, which probably means I will be. Basically, I'm in a class by myself. I'm unique. I'm different. And it seems like the people of Israel are starting to comprehend that. They're starting to understand that. Because we see this song of the sea, song of Moses, as it's described. And this happens after God leads the people out of Egypt. And remember, they go through uh, the Red Sea on dry ground, and then Pharaoh and his armies go through, and God closes the water upon them, and they drown. And then they sing this song to the Lord. And I think if we look at this song, it's best summed up by the, the words in verse 11. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? And of course the answer is, There's no one like Yahweh. And so they start to understand that this God, Yahweh, who they serve, is in a class by himself, that there's no other gods, there's nobody like the God that they serve. And so as we look at this passage today, I just like to look at the truths that they proclaim in this song. And as we look at these things, I pray that it would create a heart of worship within inside of us. That as we experience these truths, that we would long to worship as these people did. Tim Keller, pastor and author, once said this. He said, our emotions become worship when in response to a truth about God, we give something back to God. Our emotions become worship when in response to a truth about God, we give something back to God. And so in this message, I'd like to look, to look at some truths about God. And hopefully that will create in us a heart of worship. So in this passage, I see at least three reasons that there's no one like the God of Israel. There's no one like the God that we serve. And the first is, there's no one like our God who's awesome in power. Now remember, just a short time before uh, this happens, before the people of Israel... Uh, are led out of slavery. The people of Israel are freaking out because Pharaoh is after them. Their chariots are pursuing them. And they're like, we're going to die. We should have just stayed in Egypt. They, at least we had some food there. At least we'd be safe. And now they're boxed in by the sea. And then God leads them through the sea and destroys their enemies. And we see that first that they're kind of silent as they're watching God do this. They're watching the works of God. And then as immediately after that, they break out into song and gratitude for what God has done. They sing to the glorious warrior God who has triumphed over their enemies. According to one commentary based on uh, something called the Armana Correspondence, which was some basically some correspondence between ancient nations uh, around the time period of the Exodus. The uh, People of the surrounding area were terrified of the Egyptians. They were terrified of their military might. And now Israel has defeated the Egyptians and the people of the area are terrified. It says in the text that terror and dread fell upon the inhabitants of the land. It says, because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. So God has completely obliterated this powerful nation that was feared by all the surrounding nations. And now everybody is terrified at what this God is going to do. And they're wondering if they're next. 
The author of the hymn says in verse 11 that this God is majestic in holiness. It says in the ESV that He's awesome in glorious deeds. This, word for, this phrase for glorious deeds is a difficult one to translate. But it could also be translated being feared of praises. Or as one commentary translated, being terrible in fame. In other words, that He does awesome and t- almost terrible things. That He does things that invoke awe and terror and fear says that He works wonders. We see that God is no match for the enemies of His people. We see that He defeats the greatest and best that the world has to offer. He defeats the sun god. He defeats the son of the sun god. Pharaoh himself, who was believed to be God incarnate. And sometimes I think maybe we are like the Israelites in that we fear our enemies. We know intuitively God is stronger than our enemies, but in practice we fear them. And we wonder if God is going to really come through for us. I mean, despite what they maybe believed, they saw the chariots that were coming after them. They saw the archers who were ready to fire arrows at them, and they were terrified. But God shows that He's stronger than any enemy that we might face. Even as a pastor, I've kind of fallen into this trap before where we wonder if God is going to come true. You know, and we face different situations in our life. We think, you know, I don't know, we have bills to pay as a church. There are things that we would like to do, and I just hope that we have enough money to do those things. And it's like, do you really think that God is scared off by money? That He's really going to be deterred by paper with some dead guys on it? I mean, God is bigger than those things. And, you know, just in the short time that we've been here as a church, I've seen God win over evildoers. I recall seeing people whose hearts who were not right with God. And, you know, initially it seemed like God was blessing them. It seemed like they nothing could stop them. You know, and I just watched those situations with sadness at what was happening. And then just a couple years later, I saw how God brought judgment upon them and took away their influence. Because God's not surprised by the enemies of God's people. They're no match for Him. Isaiah 40, 15 and 18 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are counted by Him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? So we see that God is awesome in power. But in the book of Micah, we see that Micah alludes to this passage that we're looking at today. And we see that Micah uses this passage in a different, slightly different way to describe God's power. In the book of Micah, for the first number of chapters, uh, he basically spells out judgment for the people of Israel. It's written, the book of Micah is written in the form of a covenantal lawsuit. And basically what he is doing is saying, you have broken God's commands, you've broken God's laws, and judgment is going to come upon you. But then in chapter 7, there's a ray of hope, and he gives a hope that one day someone would come who would defeat their sins once and for all. Look at what it says in the book of Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? Sound a little familiar? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Just like God treaded over the Egyptians, Micah says one day God is going to tread over our sins. Just like God threw the Egyptians into the depths of the sea, Micah says one day God is going to throw our sins into the depths of the sea. And so he looks at the cross and the awesome power of God displayed in the cross where once and for all he defeated sin and death and defeated them once and for all. And he sees that. He sees what God is doing in that. And Micah, just like the author of this song, is in awe. And he says, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord who has this awesome power that he can defeat our sins, that he can tread them underfoot, that he can throw them into the depths of the sea? Who's a God like you? There's no one like our God awesome in power. There's nothing that our God can't conquer. Second, there's no one like our God who's a faithful king forever. We see in this passage that God is faithful to the promises He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He's fulfilling those, pro- those promises in our midst. In verse 2, the author describes God as my Father's God. He's the one who's bringing them into the promised land. In verse 18, it says that God will reign forever and ever among His people. We also see that, remember the story of Joseph and how Joseph went to Egypt. He became second in command in Egypt and he basically saved his family from the famine that was coming as well as the surrounding area. And he had a deep faith in God. And he knew that one day God was going to lead his people to the promised land. And he told the people of Israel, he told his sons, When it comes time for you guys to go to the promised land, I want you to take my bones with you as you go. And we see now that as Israel is traveling to the promised land, they're carrying with them, among them, the bones of Joseph. And so we see that connection with the past, that the God that they're serving, the God who is saving them, is the God of their ancestors and the God of their children. And so we see that thread, that God is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Psalm 90 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return all children to man. For a thousand years in your sight, our butt is yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. Isn't it an encouragement to know that God is the same yesterday, today? And forever. And we have people maybe we look up to in life. Maybe those people are you know, people in our family or religious figures, political figures, sports figures, professors, whatever. But the reality is, whoever we might look up to, each and every one of them will eventually fall. Some of them will fall quicker than others. Some of them will fall into scandal. You know, maybe they'll do something, they'll cheat, they'll... Uh, do something immoral, and they'll fall from their, so maybe the pedestal that we put them on. Others will fall into mediocrity, maybe the high standard that they created for themselves, they're not able to keep. Others will just fall by the means of time. The time will take its toll, and eventually they'll lose their influence and eventually pass from this earth. But God will never fall, and God will never fail. 
His character never changes. He'll never fall into scandal. He's not petty. He's not changing. He'll always be good. He'll always be loving. He'll always be just. That will never change from situation to situation, from age to age. He always will be the God who loves the God of justice. We see that he'll never fall into mediocrity. He'll never lose his power to save. He'll never come up short in able, being able to, to save us. God will never cease to be. A thousand years are but a day to him from everlasting, it says in, this, in the passage we just read, to everlasting, he's God. Ladies and gentlemen, God has always been. He is. And he always will be there for you. He was, He is, and He will be there for you. Psalm 124 says that He never sleeps, He never slumbers. Whenever we need Him, we can call upon Him day or night. No matter what the future holds or what you're facing in your life, God has always been there and He always will be there for you. There's no one like our God, faithful King forever. Finally, there's no one like our God loving to His people. Verse 13 of this chapter says, You have led, your, led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So the text says that God redeemed Israel. Now what did He redeem Israel from? He, he redeemed them from slavery. Now what does it mean to be a slave? It means that generally your whole purpose and your whole being is for your master. You don't exist for yourself. You exist to serve your master. And your master uses you for whatever he wants you to do. It's kind of described in the verse that says, in verse 9 where it says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. That's the heart of the Egyptians. They're going to pursue them, to try to overtake them, to try to gain whatever good they can from them. They have no concern for for the Israelites in and of themselves. It's only how the Israelites would benefit them and how they might plunder them. That's what the master does. That's what slave owners do. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that our enemy does the same thing. It says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. To keep us in slavery. But the word for led in this passage that we just looked at is a word that usually is a reference to leading or herding sheep. And the picture is that of a shepherd guiding his sheep. And the Picture is seen throughout Scripture that God is a shepherd that guides His people Israel. Which is fitting because Jesus describes Himself as the Good Shepherd. He says, I'm the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. See, the God that we serve is a God who loves us so much that He gave up heaven for us and laid down His own life for us. The Master for the slave. The Shepherd for the stinky sheep. This is unique among the gods of the nations. The gods of the nations say, serve me that I might be great, that I might be full. Jesus says, serve me so that you might be full. So that you might find life and hope in me. Our God is a God of love. 
And some of you here, maybe you just need to hear the words today that Jesus loves you. He, Jesus, cares for you. He knows what you're going through. And sometimes maybe when we think about church, some of us maybe think about church as, uh, you know, or God as someone who just wants our money. He just wants to make our life miserable. He has this long list of do's and don'ts and should and shouldn'ts. And he just wants to take from us, but that's the furthest, furthest thing from the truth. He doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't need our lives, but He invites us to have a relationship with Him so that we might find hope, so that we might be full, so that we might have purpose. Karl Barth was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. He published hundreds and hundreds of pages of scholarly work, um, really high-level stuff, really intelligent person. One day a young student asked him, so could you kind of sum up what is the most important thing about your life and work? Could you just sum it up in just a few words? He thought about it for a moment, and then he smiled and he said, yes, I could. In the words of a song my mother used to sing to me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The love of God is what changes us as believers. It's what changes us and makes us new. So there's no one like our God who's awesome in power, faithful King forever, and loving to His people. Some friends of mine and Stephanie's were helping us with our laundry room. And they said that they were going to build a vanity for us to put a little utility sink in that laundry room. And I didn't have a conception exactly of what they were building. I thought sink, building. I thought two-by-fours, utility sink. You know, something that was just kind of, you know, utilitarian. It works, you know, not really that nice. Just two-by-fours put together. And so they were working on it for some time. And then, you know, they put it in. And so I walk into the, you know, door of the house. And this lady was standing at, at the door of the laundry room. She says, okay, you ready to see it? And I go and I look in and my jaw dropped and I almost fell on the floor because it was nothing like what I was expected. It was one of the most beautiful vanities I had ever seen in my life. But I didn't have that conception of what it was going to be like. When I thought about building a vanity, I thought two by fours, utility sink. But it was nothing like that at all. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I think the same thing happens to us sometimes when God is an abstract idea. You know, we don't see His beauty. But when we experience His truth, when we experience His love, when we see the One who put on flesh, who took the form of a human being for us, it changes everything. And when we see Jesus as He is, when we see the truth of who God is and what He's done for us, it, may, it ought to make us cry out, there is no one like our God. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We thank you that you invite us into a relationship with yourself where we might find life and purpose. That you don't need us to serve you so that you might become great or so you might become full, that we serve you so that we might find life in you, Lord. 
Lord, we just thank you that you're a God who never changes, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you're there for us whenever we need to call upon you, that your arm is never too short to save, that there's no enemy in our life that's too great for your power and your might. Lord, I pray that these truths that we looked at today would not just be truths that are on a page, stories that happened years ago, but they would become real in our lives, that we would truly believe them. And as we believe them and see you working in our lives, that we would cry out, there's no one like you, O Lord. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for all that you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.